the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel on special assignment today, and our good friend Peaches Hall is filling in. Peaches is the director at the not only the Griffin Senior Center over there on Ingram Mall, she also is a former director of a number of memory units, so has a lot of background and information on those who are struggling and dealing with Alzheimer's and their patients as well. They're, they're caregivers, and you name it, she's done it. So we look forward to talking with our special guest today, Jennifer Levin, who joins us talking about what it's like to be a millennial and a caregiver. And Jennifer, we appreciate you coming on, graduate of the University of Michigan. And as a graduate of the Ohio State University, I'm still happy to talk to you. (laughs) Happy to talk to you, too. Thank you for having me. Did you grow up in the Midwest? I didn't. I grew up in New York and first went to the Midwest to attend the University of Michigan. Oh, cool. They were out there trolling for New Yorkers to come out there. They love New Yorkers. (laughs) That's for sure. It's true about a lot of Midwestern universities. They, They love bringing East Coast and West Coast folks in. They do, but it creates a great diversity within the nation in one small microcosm of a university campus, and I love that. Well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your own experiences. Uh, Tell us about uh, how you became your dad's dad. Uh, uh, Sure. Um, When I had turned 32 a couple weeks later, I received a phone call that my dad's disease had progressed. He had been diagnosed first with Parkinson's later in life, and then that diagnosis turned out to be wrong, and what he actually had was something called PSP, or progressive supernuclear palsy, which is often first mistaken for Parkinson's. And the disease progression at first was pretty slow, and then it was after my 32nd birthday that falls that are common with PSP had escalated to the point of his living alone, even in assisted living, which is what he was doing, was incredibly dangerous, and he needed to move into a nursing home. And with that, all of his level of independence shifted so that now he really needed a family member to step in and deal with selecting a nursing home, his medical, um, his insurance, financial decisions, all sorts of things. And that's where, as an only child, that's where I found myself. And, of course, you were absolutely well prepared for that. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Every 30-year-old knows about Medicare and Medicaid. <laughs> you were thrust into it, and uh, it was sink or swim, right? Absolutely. And, I mean, anybody who's dealing with a family member at all, and particularly one that they're close to, is dealing with emotional stress, you know, seeing somebody that they love going through a hard time and processing what that means. But, you know, when you throw the logistics on top of it, especially as a young person who's really just figuring out their own life and paying their own bills for, you know, the first time maybe, um, to now have to assume responsibility for somebody else at an age when a lot of caregivers of my generation haven't even had kids yet, um, sink or swim is a great way to put it. You know, um, you're really figuring it out as you go without any sort of education or PhD in the in the practice. Were you and your dad living in the same city? We weren't. My father was living in New York, where I'm from, and I was living in California, in Los Angeles, where I had moved to start my career after college. You were a writer so out caregiving there. For, a writer, yeah. yes, um, working in television production. So caregiving for me meant... Um, dealing with things with a time delay and a coast between us and frequent trips back home, which is not cheap. And also the difference from Medicare and Medicaid from different states. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't, uh, luckily I wasn't that versed in Medicare in California to confuse me too much, yeah. but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're dealing, California has a very progressive healthcare system. And so I would use certain things and, um, a certain level of response from medical professionals that you don't always find in New York. And, you know, when you're then also trying to find specialists for a disease that's pretty rare, and you're doing that from across the country, that's not easy either. Now, you knew your dad was sick, but you had no idea how bad it was until you got that phone call? That phone call, it's not that we didn't know how bad it was. It's That's when we couldn't be in denial anymore. You know, the disease progression, PSP is unusual in that it can look like a lot of different versions of itself. And so for us, it was that his balance wasn't great. Um, Neurologically, he was all there. So, you know, it was hard to say, well, you know, he fell a lot, so he's going to go to rehab. Now we're going to get him better and, you know, in shape enough to continue living life as he had. And we really had been seeing those alarms go off, but we were always able to do something to get out of it. And this was the first time that we were really told his disease has now moved to a stage where that's not possible. You know, we're going to try and keep him as mobile as we can, but it's never going to be the way it was again. And so that's when you really had to say to yourself, okay, now my dad is in a wheelchair all the time. You know, we're dealing with something that looks totally different than the way it did before. We're talking with Jennifer Levin on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Uh, she's talking about how she became her father's parent, uh, becoming a caregiver at the really young age of 32. She's written about it, talking about it, formed a group called Caregiver Collective. I'm Ron Aaron with Peaches Hall, who is filling in today for Carol Zerniel. You're listening to us on 930 AM, The Answer. And Jennifer, take us through what you did the first you realized that you really needed to become, whether it was long distance or not, uh, your father's caregiver. How did you put all that together? Well, it was really, as you mentioned, sink or swim. Things had to be done. You know, um, I was very close to my dad, and I didn't want to see him going through a hard time and his health deteriorate. So it was taking it upon myself to research his disease figure out, you know, even trials that are going on that doctors may not have told us about, but that could possibly help. I really didn't associate with the term caregiver. I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I just thought that I was being a good daughter and taking care of my dad and doing everything that I could to keep him as healthy and in my life for as long as possible. Um, So being a caregiver isn't something that I ever thought, oh, now here I am, this is my new reality. I was much more in the dark about that as a term, I guess. And so it was just things that I found myself doing, like researching insurance and how much physical therapy were allotted a month or a year, um, all doing it as the symptoms cropped up and as things needed to be dealt with. So how did your life look? How did it change? I mean, all of a sudden this affects your work, your personal life, everything. We all have different... Uh, diagnosis as a, that are out there, but how did this affect you? What did your life look like then? I felt like I was living a double life in a lot of ways. There was the life I built myself for myself in California, which included friendships and you know dating and my career, and and then what was going on with my family in New York. And because they happened in two different physical spaces, it was easier to keep them separate. And they dealt with such different level of responsibility. Like, you know, if I, you know, if there was a mishap at work, that that could hurt my ego. But if something went wrong with my dad, that would hurt me in my soul, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd really have to step in and do that and take care of that to the best of my ability. So because I wasn't identifying as a caregiver or realizing that other people go through it, I was really quiet about it, and I maintained a double life. So my friends knew that my father had a disease, and it was like Parkinson's. They knew certain things, but I never told them the extent to which I had stepped in to help take care of him or how ugly the disease had gotten and the symptoms that came along with it. And I really felt like I was staying quiet to protect his dignity in a lot of ways. A lot of those symptoms can be embarrassing, especially my dad was a good-looking guy and in some ways pretty vain. And, you know, now things like drooling were very common. That's not something that I wanted to really tell people about. So 
there was a disconnect with my friends in my kind of keeping this really heavy secret from them and also from work. I never wanted people to think that I was distracted as I was building my career. So any time that I had to take doctor's phone calls or I would get emergency phone calls, it was always taken in a closed-door room very quietly, um, really trying to keep everyone in the dark about what I was going through. So did you have a family member? I know you're the only child, but did you have a family member like a mother or, or somebody that, you know, his sister or somebody that helped you? Or where did you turn when, you, when there wasn't anyone? My mom is the one that really stepped in to help me. My mom and my dad had been divorced for decades at that point. Mm-hmm. But when my dad became ill, she was in New York, and the times that I couldn't be there, she was. Um, she really stepped into that without even really my asking to go visit him, to accompany him to doctor's appointments, bring him cupcakes, you know, try to make life a little bit lighter and just spend time with him. And it could then relay information to me when I couldn't be there that the doctor had said or things that my dad may not have understood about where his disease was going or that he probably wouldn't have told me to spare my feelings. She was um, the conduit between things that I couldn't be there for and um, and me. Now, you're the writer, and in the movies, uh, her coming back into his life in this fashion, uh, roll credits, they realize they're still in love, and get married again. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I know it definitely was this uh, bastardized version of the divorce kid fantasy. Now my parents are back together. Um, I would say that they became very close again, but th- there was no ceremony that may have closed out Act Three right. if this were a movie. <laughs> um, but they did. Yeah. They did. Uh, they did become very close, and we had a pretty tight family unit by the end. Well, that's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting silver lining that I never would have seen coming. I would never have predicted that 20 years earlier. Now, stay with us us just a minute. We're we're going to come right back to you. Uh, We're talking on our Caregiver SOS on our hotline with Jennifer Levin. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall. When I became my father's parent is what we were talking about, her dad uh, struggling with a very difficult illness that in some ways uh, mirrored Parkinson's, and she's talking about long-distance caregiving. Got about two minutes left before we jump to a spot. But before we go, uh, Jennifer, did you at some point wake up one day and say, oh my God, I'm a caregiver? I did about two years after my father passed away. I was randomly reading a study by Easter Seals that describes caregiving. And that was the first time that it was put together in my mind that that's what I've been doing that entire time. So it was it was a bit of a delayed response for me personally, but now because I have the perspective, I'm able to talk about it in a way that I probably never would have done if I were still going through it. That's pretty interesting. Stick with us. We'll come right back to you on 930 AM. The Answer, Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, talking with Jennifer Levin. How would you like to learn everything there is to know about health and wellness for seniors and their families? Well, that's the goal for WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, and Dr. Robin Eikhoff joins me weekly as we bring you information about what's hot, what's new, what's not in dealing with issues that affect seniors across this community. WellMed Radio comes to you Sunday afternoons at 5, exclusively on 930 AM, The Answer. And I hope you join us on behalf of Dr. Robin Eikhoff. Be there with us on WellMed Radio. Well, we appreciate you cruising right along with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is pinch-hitting today for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment. We're hearing a fascinating story from Jennifer Levin, a 32-year-old only daughter of a fellow, her dad, who uh, becomes quite seriously ill. She's on the West Coast. He's on the East Coast, and she becomes a long-distance caregiver. And out of that has grown a Facebook group called Caregiver Collective and a whole lot more. Uh, Jennifer, as you put together uh, the fact that you indeed uh, were a caregiver, uh, what drove you to put together the group Caregiver Collective? The more that I researched caregiving among my generation and saw how prevalent it is and how the stigma of millennial generation is really entitled and self-absorbed, and then I saw the statistics that there are over 10 million millennials that are caregivers, I realized okay, I went through this and I felt completely isolated. 
I don't know anybody else that goes through this, but this statistic says that I do, which means that I wasn't the only person not talking about it. There are a lot of people not talking about it. And after my father passed away, I had all this information. I had figured out how to get a wheelchair accessible taxi in New York and, and you know, all of these shortcuts to caregiving that now I didn't have anybody to give those to or to utilize. And I thought, well, you know, if there are this many people going through it within my generation and we do deal with a specific reality of caregiving that older adults may not um, go through, that we should be coming together. And even if people don't want to share their story the way that I have, we should at least be sharing resources and supporting each other. And I realized that there was really nothing out there for somebody, you know, to find, to reach out to. And so I thought Facebook is really the easiest, most convenient way for anybody. For me, I was under the age of 40 to find us and to connect online no matter where you are and just share your story, share resources. And that's why I started Caregiver Collective. Jennifer, you were so lucky to have your mother to step in, but there are a lot of people that are caregiving long distances. I did that. Who did you find that you could trust and help you? Was it a um, a social worker or somebody out there that really helped you? In addition to your mom. Right. Who would you have, if you didn't have your mother, who would you have depended on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's hard to imagine a reality. Like you said, I was so lucky to have my mom as I went through this and there are so many people going through it alone. I think that it's, first of all, opening up to friends that you trust. Um, I, I did that and um, it was incredibly hard and thinking that people wouldn't be able to relate kept me quiet. But once I did, I found that even if one of my friends couldn't relate, they still wanted to support me. And so um, when I couldn't afford to fly home, one of my friends without question, moved her miles and bought me a ticket to leave the next day. Mm. Um, You know, people stepped in in ways that I would never have expected or asked for, but helped me feel emotionally supported. Mm. I think that as far as dealing with medical things, that you really need a professional. Um, The doctors that we were dealing with were really sympathetic, um, especially in dealing with such a degenerative disease. And Available are support groups. I never turn to one for my own reasons, but I do know other young adult caregivers who do and find support in just opening up to other people who are going through the same thing to make you feel less alien. And, and in doing so, share resources that way. Now, you wrote a piece about all this for uh, uh, Cosmopolitan. Uh, in the uh, uh, other pieces that you write, have you woven any of this story into some of the dramas you're working on? I have. When I was going through it, I did. I um, A pilot that I was writing, I included one of the main characters is caring for her mom who's in a nursing home. Um, I have woven it in a little bit, but really I think that there's so little awareness in this generation around what caregiving is that I've made it more of a personal mission to write nonfiction about it and these kind of journalistic pieces to just open people's eyes and and people who are like me who are not familiar with the caregiver title. Um, What I was hoping for with this Cosmo article is that people read my experience and say, oh, I understand this experience. I love this too. Well, that means that you're a caregiver. So now there are all these resources available to you you didn't realize. So it shaped what I write just in in a path that I wouldn't have coming a few years ago. Sure. And I'm looking through your Facebook and when you're getting all the stories and without giving names, is there a thread of something you see that is the same or that a lot of repeat or something? What is it that you see on your Facebook that they share? The one thing that I've noticed in the Facebook group and also speaking with people is the word guilt. Mm. That a lot of people around my age don't talk about what they're going through because they feel guilty. Um, I think that when you're dealing with disease and the person is going through something so awful and you feel almost secondary to it, it's hard to admit that it's hard on you too. And people use that word, I feel guilty talking about it Mm. because I'm not the sick one. Um, I felt guilty. I felt guilty talking about it because I didn't want my dad to ever be seen as a victim or a patient because 
he was a man and so much more than just the disease. And so I felt guilty talking about all the hard things he was going through. I hear other people say they feel guilty because they don't want to be the sad person in their group of friends, always talking about depressing things. So that has been the one threat that I've noticed is the the usage of the word guilt. And are you seeing the same ages like of yourself that reflect when you get your your Facebook people calling or you know posting. sending their yeah posting? I have noticed I opened that group up to anybody under the age of forty, and I've noticed a lot of people in their late twenties hmm. um, joining. People of all ages have joined, um, even some people older than forty. Um, but I have noticed a lot of people in their late twenties. Some just beginning their own family some have not yet married or had kids and um and speaking out about it so what's your advice to somebody who posts and they are starting a family what do you tell them oh well um the caregiving looks so different for all the people that are posting so it's hard to give advice for anybody in that situation Mm -hmm. because they could be caring for a parent or they could be caring for their spouse There are a lot of veteran spouses that have joined my group. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the shape of caregiving looks totally different for both of those. And both of those stories are hard. You know, whether you're, there's one caregiver who had to move her family across the country, Mm -hmm. you know, a toddler son and her husband, so that she could care in home for both of her parents. And then there's, you know, a young woman who had to drop out of graduate school because she's caring for her husband and can't balance the workload with caring you know so i don't know that there's one piece of blanket advice other than just to reach out and say this is me and this is what my story because then other people respond and say oh i'm going through the same thing and i've noticed some of those conversations you know going into lengthy threads that i never would have been able to address we're talking with jennifer levin talking about how she became her father's parent She's written about it for Cosmopolitan Magazine, has a Facebook group called Caregiver Collective. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is filling in today for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer, and podcasts of all of our programs are also available. And we uh, encourage you to take a listen. If it's a topic that especially resonates with you or someone you know, uh, you can certainly share that with them, and uh, it may provide some help to them as they deal with the kinds of issues uh, we're talking about today with uh, Jennifer Levin. Uh, Jennifer, you, you joked about uh, you figured out how to get a cab in New York uh, that will accommodate a wheelchair short of a gun in the middle of the street with a police officer. How do you find one? <laughs> well, if you do some digging, there's actually an app that you can just put on your phone or it's a phone number that you can call however you want to access it. That brings a yellow cab almost like the way an Uber would just show up when you request one, it brings a yellow taxi that has this incredible motorized ramp that very swiftly gets a wheelchair in and out. And I have found that the drivers of these yellow cabs are really patient and kind people. And so just having that at your fingertips, if you can afford cabs in New York, you know, that changed everything. What other assists and apps uh, became a big part of you and your dad's life? Um, As far as apps, that would be the one. We have in New York, we're lucky to have really great city services for people that have a hard time getting around. And so we have um, Accessoride, which is a less cost-prohibitive option for transportation where um, you can, it's like a like a bus for people that have wheelchairs or walkers and it's the price of a subway ride and so that was also very helpful in getting to doctor's appointments um and there's all this technology out now that i didn't use but um to assist people with caregiving as far as you know um, timers on your phone of when people need to take medication um a friend of mine uses skype to skype with his mom um across the world to remind her to, you know, have meals at mealtimes and where the food is in the house and things like that um, because she deals with memory issues. Right. The heroine in all this is not only you but your mom who, who stepped up when, oh, she, no kidding. when <laughs> she didn't have to do that. I, I know so many stories of people who actually got divorced uh, because the spouse uh, developed some, you know, serious problem. They didn't want to be their caregiver, so they said, sayonara, here your mom already divorced, <laughs> steps back in. Have you talked to her about that? What, what motivated her? 
Um, I haven't talked to her about it, actually, and I don't know that she would give me an honest answer, to huh. be honest, um, because huh. it's, you know, a personal relationship between her and my dad, and, and I think that, you know, the way she told me is, you know, well, he's a human being, it's hard to see somebody go through that, and, and she also saw the emotional toll that it took on me and, and how I was really struggling emotionally with it, and I think that she, in part, did it to relieve my stress, but... I don't know what their, you know, and their just own a decent, relationship was like. Gosh, what a great yeah, woman. absolutely. Great. That's, That's really pretty true. cool. Oh, I'm going yeah. to get her to listen to this. She'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very impressed. That touches me a lot. And how is your mom doing? Yeah. Is she fine physically? Oh, she's great. Yeah, she travels all the time, and she's retired, and she's very healthy physically. She works out with a trainer regularly, and she's in great shape, which my dad has been, too, before this disease, which is why it was such a shock. Were you, you and your dad close before all this began? Oh, incredibly close. Mm. Yeah, we talked every day. About what? Oh, about anything. I don't know. <laughs> you know <laughs> um, when you talk to somebody every day, is there even anything to talk about? I don't know. <laughs> wow, Jennifer, you are lucky and blessed to have two wonderful parents. Stay with us just a minute. We're going to come right back at you. And I want to get some tips that you may have for others, as Peaches uh, touched on earlier, somebody who's about to go through this, what you learned about yourself through caregiving and where to go for the kind of advice and help uh, that can make a difference. And tell us a bit more about Caregiver Collective. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, talking with uh, Jennifer Levin, a really neat story about how she became her father's parent. This is Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. What an amazing story from Jennifer Levin, talking about how she, uh, with the help of her mom long distance, became her father's parent. She on the West Coast, he on the East Coast, uh, struggling with a disease that most of us have never heard about and nobody wants. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is filling in today for Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Uh, Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about the disease your dad had, because it's one of those orphan diseases that, thankfully, not a lot of people get. Unfortunately, your dad did. That's true, and we don't know how he got it or why, but um, PFP in a lot of ways, it's considered a Parkinsonian disease, and in a lot of ways will mirror that with um, mobility issues. But the more I've now spoken with the Cure PSP Foundation that does a lot of research into the disease, um, there are a lot of traits with Lou Gehrig's disease in ALS, um, and it seems to really uh, mimic that disease a lot, too. It, it is a rare disease, but it seems that if they're able to unlock PSP and find a cure for that and to get a little fancy um, the tau proteins that cause this disease, that will actually unlock Alzheimer's. And so PSP research, even though it's a rare disease, it's incredibly necessary to help a lot of people across the world. Um, and it's a, it's a terrible neurological disease that, like I mentioned, it, it manifests in a lot of different ways, and you may get some symptoms, but not all of them, and um, it's pretty devastating. And your dad knew what was happening? He did know what was happening. I know that there are some people with PSP who um, neurologically are not all there. My dad was very with it. Um, he did know what was happening, which is, you know, that. It was helpful that he was himself and we never had to deal with dementia or anything like that on a grand scale, but it's also incredibly tragic that he knew what right. was happening to him. Because Peaches, as you know, many with Parkinson's develop mm -hmm. dementia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, we had, we had like, um, is it called midnighting or, you yes. know, like sundowning? Sundowning. Sundown yeah. Um, yeah, like there, there was a bit of that, but for the most part, he was totally with it, and he would, even in the nursing home, still call me every day, and uh, and we talk every day. Well, that's but cool. his speech, yeah, it's just that his speech was really affected. And PSP really um, weakens all of your muscles, some more than others, and mm. so the throat muscles really are affected, and his jaw. Swallowing. So speaking for him became incredibly difficult, which mm. was hard. Now um, you mentioned that. Uh, you started the uh, Caregiver Collective Facebook page looking for a way uh, to connect millennials. Uh, what was your hope for the page, and how is it working out? My hope for the page was just to get people to connect 
you can do whatever you want on that page, you know, whether it's sharing a personal story, sharing information that you think will help somebody else, asking a question to see if anybody else has a solution for you, or even just staying quiet and observing and pulling information that's helpful. However anybody wants to use that page is what my hope was, and my hope has been exceeded. I mean, people really reached out to me immediately and joined the group and were very forthcoming, saying, you know, here's my name, this is my experience, I'm going through this too, I'm glad that we have a place to all connect, and people continue to use it. So um, I'm really happy about that. There's an incredible joy and energy when somebody who's going through that pain is able to help somebody else. That kind of relieves that pain a little bit, so that it's a, that's a joyous piece of it. Absolutely, and there's a relief in it, and, mm-hmm. and no matter which side you're on, just to think, okay, I'm not as isolated as I thought I was. I'm not the only person who has to figure this out from scratch. There's somebody who went through this, whether it's months or years before me, who can either give me a practical piece of advice or just hold my hand a little Mm -hmm. bit through it. And um, I think that, yes, for the person who's able to offer themselves as the resource, there is joy in that. Mm -hmm. I found that, even just from starting a Facebook page, (laughs) I found that. Mm Now, you mentioned in the article you wrote for Cosmopolitan that you became your dad's uh, health care proxy. He gave you the right to help make health care decisions, although you were doing this long distance. Mm -hmm. How did that work out? um, Well, it worked out, luckily, I guess, in the sense that I only really had one big decision to make. And so before that, you know, everything was done by committee anyway. You know, I was never going to make a decision for my dad's health while he was in his right mind that, you know, wasn't going to take into account what he thought about it. So the medical proxy, the healthcare proxy was a formality. Um, It was something that my dad and I both didn't really want to deal with. My mom is the one who insisted that one be put into place. And thankfully she did that because we ended up needing it at the end of his life. But, um, that was it was so such a loaded conversation where you were forced to think about the worst case scenario that it wasn't something we really wanted to deal with. So my dad made me the proxy while I was in California, um, even though I had been dealing with everything already. That was now a formal piece of paper that said I was in charge of him, which is it was sad. It was a sad. Jennifer, occasion. don't you encourage people who don't have any problems in their their health problems to have these conversations before this does happen to talk about it? Yes. I know it's so hard, but to talk about it now. Absolutely, my mom is very clear. This is what I want. Don't do anything different than this. Right. You know, yeah. if I'm in this situation, do this, and that. And for yourself to too, out, but even though you're young, for yourself too. Absolutely. I mean, these things are awful to think about. No one ever wants to think about the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're much easier conversations to have Mm -hmm. when the situation isn't loaded and And, when you don't think it's around the corner. And you have no idea what your family's thinking. I know my son said to me one day, if anything happens to you, Mom, I'm taking you home. I'm like, oh, God, no. (laughs) No, That's not exactly what I'm thinking about. No. So we had that conversation, (laughs) too. So it's important. And it's important to put it in writing in Mm -hmm. in an advanced directive. Yes. A hundred percent. And I think, too, when, you know, my family is very small, but when you're dealing with larger families and it falls on a group of siblings, I now witness other families where those siblings have very different ideas from each other Mm -hmm. about the way something should be dealt with. So I a hundred percent agree with you. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just Wherever you want, put that in writing, a legal document, so that if it's ever needed, there it is. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned uh, earlier about uh, how this put a financial strain on you, not at one point having the money to fly back to New York. Somebody stepped up, helped underwrite a ticket for you. But what was the overall financial impact for you, and what do you recommend uh, for folks who are engaging now in that journey of caregiving? I would say my financial impact, there was an impact. It was not as devastating as other stories that I hear. Um, I didn't lose my job over it. Um, I was able to pay for things, but I I was paying for a private nurse's aid part-time out of my savings. So 
you know, I was happy to do it because it was peace of mind for me. It helped my dad's quality of life. But, you know, in the big picture, it made a dent on my savings. Um, Right, the flights back and forth, they just became unrealistic at a certain point, you know, when I'm on making a certain amount of money because I'm early in my career. I would say that for somebody who um, needs advice dealing with financials is to be organized. I was not organized. I was dealing with bills as they came up because I didn't really have a full picture of my dad's financial picture. Um, and so doctor's bills would be sent to me and I'd be confused and, and have to pay for them. Um, there are ways to be organized about that, again, before somebody becomes ill, um, just to know what are the bills that get paid every month? You know, um, what if somebody has to step in and assume financial responsibility, what should they have their eyes open to? One thing that I would also really suggest is that when you're dealing with somebody with disease, a lot of times the foundations for those diseases will offer some sort of grant money. I don't know if it's called a grant, actually, but, you know, some sort of money that you can apply for to help alleviate your financial burden, whether it is um, having somebody show up for respite and they'll cover the cost of respite for like an hour or two a week so that you have some time for yourself. That was something that I did not know existed when I was caring for my dad. Um, or it's, you know, um, to go towards medical bills. I know the uh, Cure PFP Foundation now has um, uh, money that you can apply for, and Alzheimer's Association, I believe, does as well. So just do a little bit of digging into whatever you're dealing with to see if there are resources available to you that will help alleviate your burden a little bit. Did your dad have long-term uh, insurance? If he did, I'd be finding about it. <laughs> about it now. So, so how did he nothing. cover? How did you pay for a, a assisted living and nursing home? It's very expensive. It's very expensive. That was something that um, insurance paid for. I don't. I don't know long term insurance. I don't know it was medical insurance like um, Medicare. Yeah, Medicare wouldn't pay for nursing home. It was the Medicaid. You probably transferred from the assisted living to a nursing under Medicaid. But that's the one thing I talk to my families that talk to me at all is long-term care insurance. And when they say to me, well, what if I never get sick? Well, thank God you never have to use it then. But it's there if you, yeah. I know that what you're, yeah, what you're referring to in the Medicaid paying for the nursing home, there are families that I know that are encouraged even by the facility, to hide the patient's financial assets under a family member's name yeah, doesn't so that work. they can be qualified for Medicaid. Yeah, they'll do a five-year um, look back because if they see the money's missing, then they're going to say, you either went to Vegas or you gave it to a family member. So they won't wow. approve them. <laughs> yeah, so they're very strict on it now. So I say yeah, the plan. Rules, mm-hmm. Yeah, the rules have changed, and they've gotten a lot, lot tougher. Yeah. When people spend down in order to be on Medicaid, mm-hmm. uh, what Peach has said, they do, a, they do a five-year look back. They really play, pay close attention now. Yeah. And so the long-term care insurance is the magic bullet right now. If you're young. Yes. Well, okay. even if you're not young, you may have to pay a little bit more. But at, you know, at your age, Jennifer, yay, you can buy it and get it at a great price. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. I mean, I know that when it came to financial, we really leaned heavily on the financial office at the assisted living and the nursing home because they were familiar with a lot of right. resources that we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, that was their every day, you know, mm-hmm. while we were learning it. And um, that was, those were really the people we turned to. Although I know that if you have the resources to pay for an elder care attorney, I know that they will help you out as well in finding things that um, you may be able to utilize to alleviate a bit of the financial burden. Before we jump out, we got about a minute or, or so left. If folks want to get a hold of you, the uh, Facebook page is one, Caregiver Collective. Do you have a website as well? I don't, but I'm pretty active on my Twitter page, and a lot of people have reached out to me through that. And my Twitter handle is Classic Levin. I found you on Twitter. <laughs> Classic oh. Levin. <laughs> so, so what drama shows have you worked on? We watch a lot of crime shows in my house. Oh, well, yeah, then um, you may or may not be familiar with CSI. I worked yeah. there for yeah, of course uh, we are. quite a few years. Yeah, exactly. Crime, everyone knows that show, and if you love crime dramas, yeah, that's, that's one of the biggies. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, that was, that was actually my first uh, uh, television job was on CSI. So you obviously have a very furtive and evil mind. <laughs> 
That was a compliment. I can go there if need be. That's a compliment, right? <laughs> Jennifer Levin, thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. You take care. You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Jennifer Levin, and you want to take a look at her article in Cosmopolitan, all you have to do is Google Jennifer N. is in Nancy Levin, and everything you need to know about her and a whole lot more will come up. I became my father's parent. Up next, Dr. Jamie Heisman for Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is pinch hitting for Carol Zernial today on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. Well, here we are for Take 10. Each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs is followed by Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, who joins us as a uh, internationally known psychologist, a man who has dealt with not only the issues involved in caregiving, but addictions as well, a psychotherapist of great note, and Peaches Hall, who is filling in for Carol Zerniel today. Carol on special assignment. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And, Jamie, we recently interviewed a young woman, a millennial, who talked about uh, the challenges she faced becoming her father's caregiver. And she said one of the things she realized about herself, uh, she was dealing with guilt every time she was motivated to talk to her coworkers or her friends or mention uh, the situation she was in as a caregiver, how bad off her dad was. She figured, I don't want to talk about that. He's so much worse off than I am. And then she felt guilty about it. How common is that? Ron, that's extremely common. And it's common across all generations of caregivers. You know, guilt is a is pandemic. It's actually associated, I think, with uh, caregiving in a, in a very kind of connected way. When I do lectures or a talk or even my writings in my magazine, you've heard me say that guilt is correlated with self-esteem. Often the higher your self-esteem, the lower the guilt. And often higher the guilt, the lower the self-esteem. So they're like correlates. And nobody wants to speak about their, themselves and, and be the center of attention and, and to feel like they're, you know, the self-engrossed you know, middle of all this. But this comes with the territory. And actually, you see long-distance caregivers suffering from it as bad as primary caregivers. The other thing, too, is when you hold that back and you're not able to talk about it, sometimes some anger builds up and then you're barking at the person you're caring for or resentful, and then even though they have a disability, they still sense it, they still feel it, so then there's friction between the two of you. You know, Peaches, you're, you're spot on. In fact, the most difficult part about caregiver guilt, but the challenge that we have to face is how do we accept this? How do we recognize that the feelings of basically inadequacy and guilt are normal? I mean, this is a normalized feeling of caregiving. How do we allow ourselves to acknowledge these emotions and, and be able to process them? It's something that we've never done. I mean, let's face it, under 5% of this country ever seeks mental health treatment. And so they don't know their strengths and they don't know their weaknesses and they really don't know what lies underneath the iceberg. But acceptance is the antidote. It really is what we need to get to to, to be able to deal with this guilt. Well, in some socioeconomic groups, Hispanic being one, there is a reticence to seek mental health counseling as a sociological issue. Why is that? Well, you know... The diverse populations we deal with, um, you know, Anglos, Hispanics, African Americans, Asian Americans, you're right, has, has a entirely different characteristics associated with it. And reaching out, especially for um, the diverse population, the non-Anglos, if you will, 
is extraordinarily difficult. So what they've done basically is overcompensate in, in a very cool sort of way by developing an extended family sort of uh, orbit around the caree uh, in a way that, that anglers have a lot to learn from. But once they do reach out, uh, Ron, once they do connect, that's the therapeutic bond, and it's up to the other party, if you will, to be there for them when they do connect. Interesting. You mentioned the family surrounding the individual. One thing you would rarely hear from an Anglo family, a friend of mine who is Vietnamese was talking about uh, how his mother was uh, going to be needing care and how he hoped very much that she chose him and his family as opposed to his sister and his brother's family. They were competing to have the mother come live with them. Uh, You don't see that in a lot of Anglo families. No, no, you really don't. But that is also a challenge. You know, that to me is like recreation of the family of origin, the way we were raised. And that's what caregiving does. You know, if you're not getting mental health treatment, if you're not having a safe place to process this, all of a sudden the ghosts and goblins of the past, no matter what culture you're from, seems to come out. Right, and they become caregivers, and they're not skilled or trained or have the ability to do that. And maybe because they're the eldest or the middle or whatever it is that they are, that they get the family to take care of their take care of the mom and dad, and they're really not the best choice. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on airs. Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. Dr. Jamie Heisman with us. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is filling in for Carol Zerniel. And, Jamie, I want to throw one other fact out to you today to react to. Uh, our guest, who talked about guilt and talked about uh, how she was uh, concerned about, well, she's not as bad off as her dad. She shouldn't be concerned in talking about it. She said something else, which was she didn't share with her coworkers her father's situation, which was really pretty desperate because he was a very proud and private man and she didn't want to demean him in any way. So she really kept the seriousness of what she was dealing with uh, under wraps. Isn't that interesting? I often call that a clinical projection because at some point in time, being honest about the medical condition somebody you're taking care of has means that you're also going to be honest about reaching out and getting the proper sort of support groups. You know, much about that, Ron, is about ourselves and our ability to reconcile mental health issues, vulnerability, you know, uh, and and really getting in touch with our own feelings. Maybe she does have a father who is like that, but it's compounded. It's compounded by the way we perceive ourselves. She wrote in an article, for example, in Cosmopolitan Magazine, how folks would notice every once in a while she was uh, buying bibs to mail to him. She was in Los Angeles. He was on the East Coast. And they commented about, oh, there must be a you know small child in the family. And she wouldn't explain that the disease he had, it was a form of Parkinson's, uh, meant that he drooled a lot. And so a bib kept his clothing clean. Uh, she was embarrassed by that. You know, I'm sure Peaches will confirm this. But when you're talking Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or Lewy body or actually mental health, challenges, you're talking about stigma, you're talking about shame. I think people talk more about cancer and kidney and endocrinology and the things that are actually medical below the neck, and they have a very, very difficult time getting in touch with the neurological or the psychiatric issues. Amen. For some reason, that's been the taboo of our culture. Yeah, the the worst thing I, I can remember is a family was so embarrassed because the mother would revert back to using profanity, and they were, oh, you know, that was just horrible for him. Or another one who would wear his shirt backwards or wear his underwear on top of his pants. or You know, what all those things were not what their father was, and they were still holding on to the other part and not just loving and embracing what was happening, you know, just... But you had talked about the memory unit that that you were managing uh, where some of your uh, guests would put their underwear on the outside. Mm -hmm. You embraced that. Superman wore his underpants on the outside. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sometimes they'd try to put their socks over their shoes, and, you know, we'd take pictures and send it to the family and say, you know, some days they're just like that. You know, and and the families wanted to enjoy and understand and know that no matter how quirky the things were that their loved one was doing, we were accepting it, not making fun of it, going, jo- joining the journey, you know. But Jamie, so why do we get embarrassed by that if it's our loved one? Because we actually don't talk about it, Ron. We all share our experiences because it's just been ingrained in us that this is a, a mental health issue and we don't air, quote unquote, 
our dirty laundry out there. But if you will, you find out that it's just like any medical ailment out there, then you can share. And the more you do share, you know, and, and in reference to what Peaches says, the more you realize that there's episodic psychiatric outbursts and latter-stage Alzheimer's, or you do know that people will put on their clothing wrong, and it becomes more normalized. And I think the more we actually enter, a caregiver can enter a support group setting, which I think is the most vital thing for them to come out of their own guilt, their own shame, be able to reconcile, to be able to accept, and really focus on love, if you will, not necessarily duty, is to talk to other people, to hear their stories, and then it starts kind of rolling off our tongues and we practice this and we find out it's not so bad to communicate in fact it's pretty therapeutic yeah and they're going through enough anyway who cares which way their shirt's on well but it's funny both jamie and i have young children he's got a little daughter i've got uh, twin boys who are four and a little girl who's five when carter who is heavy into costumes comes down wearing his underpants outside his pants we think it's cute as can be because he's being superman right mm-hmm. we embrace that mm-hmm. but when grandpa would do that but he's not in a restaurant he's in an environment that's safe and you just don't that's so much so much stress to put on them yeah, and the latitude we give children, Ron, is wonderful. We're, you know, they're yeah. naive. They've not been spoiled yet. They've not been indoctrinated to the taboos, quote-unquote, of our culture. I think that's the beauty of the child. Once we get to be caregivers or once we get to take care of our loved ones, all of a sudden these social norms and values kind of penetrate, and we realize, you know, adulthood is, is a lot of challenges, and if you will, in, in my language, service and Michigash, Michigash, because... What happens is we take the shame, we take the stigma mm. of society, and we get quiet and we repress it. You know, once in a while you meet a family that really gets it. And I had a family that would come and visit their dad, and it, he would go into shop in another person's closet and took a giant pink fuzzy sweater, and I had to take it away from him. And the family bought him one. You know, how nice was that? <laughs> We're going to stop right here flat out of time. Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. Peaches Hall, Ron Aaron on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.